Good morning. How is everyone post-Thanksgiving? Lots of turkey, I assume, by the silence. Um, my name is Kyle Leffel. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you guys today. We're starting Advent today, like Nathan said, and so it's a time where we are preparing uh, for the return of Christ, but also remembering the birth of Christ for the next couple of, of Sundays. And um, if you, have, if you are, have been a joyous Christian in your life, you have been listening to Christmas music the day after Halloween, but if you are a Scrooge, now I guess you are permitted to listen to Christmas music. Um, so we have been listening to Christmas music for a long time in my house, um, so it's been great. Um, but I'm excited to talk to you guys about what we're going to be talking about in the Word. Uh, if you have a Bible, open to John 1, 1 through 3. That's what we'll be looking at today, John 1, 1 through 3. Um, this is a very well-known passage. Uh, John, the author of the gospel, is going to revisit and use language that is, as, as was written in Genesis, in the beginning. This is a very well-known passage in the Bible, probably one of the most well-known. But contextually, there's a lot going on here. Um, John was writing in a language, Greek. The Bible, the New Testament especially, was written in Koine Greek, and he uses a word, word, right? He uses the word, word. Now, to express yourself, to use words is the best way to disclose who you are as a person. It's a great way to say, this is who I am. This is, let me explain myself. You've heard, you've heard the phrase, let, let the man explain himself. Let, let the man speak. You've heard those kind of sayings. But that word, word in the Greek is a word that means so much more than what we say, word. In the Greek, that word is the word logos. It's where you and I in the English language get the word logic, logic or account. Sometimes even uh, you can think of, think of it as science, but that's not a, a great translation. The word logos in this context, in this culture, and what I believe John is communicating to us is of significant value. The word logos in this term uh, meant something totally different. In Greek culture, both Hebrew and Greek, he was writing to both types of people, both were familiar with this idea of a logos. In Greek culture, if you look at Heraclides and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they have one continuing thread of truth, that there is this governing authority of the universe, of the metaphysical realm, that's called the logos. So it differs from different degrees. It could be God or God's but there is a logos. There is something that is a balancing the universe. There's something that if we are in line with, it gives us purpose and meaning. In other words, when, you, when they saw the word logos, they thought this. In the beginning was the reason for life. That is a very powerful statement. If I came up to you and I came and I said, hey, you didn't know who I was, and I just whispered, I said, Psst, come here. And you're like, that's a little weird. But I come up to you and I say, I want you to meet me right here at 9 p.m. tonight. I'm going to let us into the church. I want you to meet me right here. You would say, bit weird. Uh, why? Why do you want me here? Why, why, why did you come and, and have this awkward interaction with me? Now, you want a reason. You want a reason why to come here? We have reasons for everything we do. Why did you get married? If you are married, because you love that person. Why did you take the job that you took? Well, because I wanted to either provide for my family or because I really like the work or because my degree is in this field of, that I'm taking the job in. 
Why do you root for sports teams? Well, you know, I'm a Notre Dame fan, so I perpetually like to root for a team that's constantly inflated in their ranking and is just really poor, I'll be honest with you. Um, that's the reason. You need a reason for, why are you here? There's reasons behind every single thing that we do. But if I were to submit to you and say, but what's the reason for your very life? This is a very interesting question. Often it would be, often it would be said, that's a deep question. Let me think about that. Or I need to think longer on that. This is the question that John, the Bible, and Jesus Christ, namely, are posing. What's the very reason for your life? What's your life built on? You know, most of us, we play and we work and we get busy with either school or work or family or things of life. We get so caught up in the wind that we, we often forget, what is the reason for my life? What, what am I doing? What, what's the point? What's the, in the Greek, you, there's a word called telos. What's the purpose of my life? That's just what that word means. That we forget. We need a reason to meet this weird pastor here, but we can't give a reason, for some of us, for their, our very lives. This is a deep question. One, one, one thinker and Christian biblical counselor who's had an impact on my life posed in a training that he gave to a ministry that I worked for. He says, he opened up and just said this very deep question. Are you content with just existing and then dying? And I would submit that the answer to every single person in this room, whether you are a Christian or not, is unequivocally no. I'm not just okay existing and then dying, but why? No, because you have a reason. There's a reason for life. There's a reason why I'm here. There's a reason why I'm at church. There's a reason everything that I do there's a reason. And the Bible and John goes so bold to say that the reason for life is not in an abstract philosophical principle. It's in a person. It's in a person. That is so bold and so true. We're going to read, we're going to, have, we're going to read God's word and then I'll pray and you may be seated. Let's stand for the reading of John 1, 1 through 3. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is the Word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray. God, we thank You that You are... Uh, you are preexistent, God, that you are eternal, Lord, that you are three in one, God, that you are distinct in your persons, God, as we're going to see in the Trinity, but God, that you have given us a reason for our life, and that is to know and to love you. Lord, you're sovereign over everything, our lives, even in the minutia of our lives, and so if there are people here that have been significantly discomforted by the holidays and missing people or tragedy in their life, I pray that you would not give them what they need, but that they would see you as you are, as the comforter, as the one who gives peace, who is peace. But Lord, I pray for this, for those who are too comfortable in this room, God, that you would show them your word that is truth and discomfort them and draw them to repentance. God, we love you. We want to know you more. So God, we're thankful to be able to look at your word and to know what it is saying. 
God, speak through me, Holy Spirit. And uh, yes, this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're following along in notes, I've, the talk, three, three kind of subdivisions of my talk of the sermon would be the nature of the word, the word today, so what today says about a reason for living, and how to get the right word, how to get the right meaning. If I, the nature of the word, if I were to remind you of a, of a movie called Saving Private Ryan, I imagine many of you have seen this. It's uh, my second favorite movie of all time. Um, not that you care. Uh, but Saving Private Ryan, it's a, mis- it's a rescue mission by a guy named, played by Matt Damon who's lost all three of his, I think all two or three of his brothers. And they're on a rescue mission to save the last surviving uh, child of this family who's at war. And it's, Tom Hanks is in it. There's a lot of great actors. But the one scene in that movie that is most memorable to, to, I would say, every person who's seen it is the very beginning. Right away, you see Tom Hanks in this boat, and they are, they are hitting the beaches of Normandy, and he's giving orders, and he's giving orders, and they hit, and t- about five seconds go in silence, and all of a sudden, you hear chains rumbling, and this door to this boat that they're on that they just hit, hit the beach starts to swing low, and all of a sudden, you start to see this, the horrific carnage of what was World War II, of people in this boat being hit by an onslaught of bullets and uh, different other, you know, things. Basically, it was just a massacre. And wave after wave after wave of men hit it. But what you remember about that movie is that opening scene. Wow, it takes your breath away. It's like, wow, I will never forget that. And John is doing the same thing. He is, he is saying, in the beginning, in the very beginning, that time is not circular, right? It's, there's not reincarnation, but time is linear, that there was a starting point and there is an end and that there is an author. In the beginning, he was there. This would have been, this would have been just like that Saving Private Ryan scene, except 10 times more. This would have been absolutely paradigm shifting on my, my existence, who God is, and what I'm created for. In in the Latin or in the Greek, uh, he's going to use kind of the same verbiage as the Hebrew, in arche, right? In the beginning was God. In the very beginning was God. That is mind-boggling. Athanasius, um, the, one of the church fathers in the early uh, church right after the resurrection, Athanasius said, has a quote that says, there never was when he was not. There never was when he was not. And so what we see here is that not only is God preexistent, but that he is triune. That the Trinity is displayed here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So there is a, it's, God is not unipersonal, right? But there is a relationship. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see this. We see the Trinity right here. And so the question is, this, the Trinity has been long debated. It's been attacked from many different angle, angles, from Arianism, which would say that Jesus is su- subordinate to God the Father, that Jesus is not really God. He is a God. That's not true. We don't see that in the Word. We've also seen the Trinity hit by Jehovah's Witnesses, which would say that Jesus is a God. 
That's not true either. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but the Word was God. This is clear. So do we worship three gods? Most Muslims would say that Christians worship three gods. Do you and I, if you are a born-again believer in Christ, do we worship three gods? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, because God is too one for that. But do we worship one God in different forms, right? So it's one God, but he shifts to the form of Jesus of the Son, and then he shifts to the Spirit, and then he shifts to the Father. No. No. Because he's too three for that. that is what, that's a doctrine that has plagued the early church since the very beginning. It's called modalism. That God is shape-shifting. He comes in different modalities. But God shows up as the Father. He shows up as the Son, as the Holy Spirit. No. He's two, three for that. Three in one. One God distinct in three persons. In the Council of Chalcedon, which happened in uh, almost close to 500 AD, this is an ecumenical council that seeked to really show how, what is the nature of being hit with all types of these, of heresies of Arianism and Marcionism, which would say that uh, the Jesus of the New Testament is different from the vengeful, capricious, wrathful God of the Old Testament. And what they came up with was a word called homoousios, which means that Jesus is homoousios to the Father. What's that word? It's just a big word that means he's of the same substance. He's of the same substance as the Father. He is the same that they are three in one, that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. By the way, all of us are Chalcedonian, as one of my good friends reminded me. So early Christmas present to you guys. That's what I say to my children every morning on Christmas. Believe it or not, boys, you're, we're all Chalcedonians here, and they rejoice. No, they don't. They don't care. Um, why is this a big deal? You know, this is not a church history lecture. Um, why is this a big deal? Most people would say this is just semantics. Is it? Absolutely not. This is the difference between biblical Christianity and some other form of washed up, lukewarm, diluted version of what the Bible has to say. In other words, can you trust the Bible? Yes, you can. This is the difference between falsehood and truth. Here, let me give you three reasons why this matters. First, it means that believers know, can know what God is like. So is he the God of philosophers like Kant and Plato? The God of the mystics? The God of the New Age pantheonism or panantheonism, which, is, which would, would just say that everything is God and God is in everything? Is that true? No, it's not. Or is he the God of the Bible? If Jesus Christ is God, then people can know what God is like. You can have a relationship with him. To know Jesus Christ is to know God. For Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If one wants to know what God is like, he should study the word in the life of Christ. John 17, three through five, in the high priestly prayer, when Jesus goes before the cross, it, it prays a prayer that God would be glorified. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Was Jesus created? Was Jesus created? The reality is no. As if the Father is preexistent, but the Son is not preexistent, that's, that's also false. That's not true either. That Jesus is co-eternal with God. There's a part where Jesus looks at Pharisees and says, before Abraham was, I am. And they get outraged. Why? Because they know what he just did. This was a sin that was, a sin to them that was punishable by death. It was blasphemy. It was saying, I am God. 
Jesus is co-eternal with God. Jesus is, has been and is preexistent. Second, it means that God was always like Jesus. Many have concluded that there is a great difference between the Lord Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. If the Word was with God before time began, and if God's Word is part of the eternal scheme of things, it means that God was always like Jesus. Sometimes what people would say, as if another doctrine, heresy called Marcionism, would say, the God of the Old Testament is very different from the God of the New Testament. That's absolutely false. It's absolutely false. It's the same God. Jesus, or in Psalm 33, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep into storehouses. It's by the word of the Lord. Who's the word? Christ. The New Testament knows nothing of that idea. Does God the Father hate sin? Absolutely. Christ also hates sin. Does God the Father love sinners? Yes, Therefore, Christ loves sinners. Lastly, third, the truth that Jesus Christ is God means that his death for sin is of infinite value. His death is the only acceptable and sufficient sacrifice for sin. Because he is human and yet sinless, his sacrifice is appropriate and acceptable before a holy God. And because he is God, his sacrifice is of infinite, is of infinite value. These three things are absolutely crucial. Now I could talk, and we could talk more, much more on the Trinity and how you know this is true, and how biblically this is true. But I will go on. But to think about this, it seems simple, right? And absolutely here, that there is a reason to life. It's such a simple statement. But if you look at the Greek here, that this triune God who has existed before time even began is the very reason for our life as believers. It is the very foundation as the psalmist says, you put my feet on a firm foundation, and that is the Lord. Is that true for you? Is that true for you? Do you know him like that? Oftentimes, although we know this to be true, what happened is that when sin entered the world, we have exchanged what Paul would say, the truth of God for a lie and worship created things rather than creator. What's the truth he is talking about? It's the fact that your life is contingent upon the creator. If we are creation, we must know and be in line with our creator. If there's a design, there is a designer. And the reality is that sin has fractured that to where we all say, no, my reason for life will be built on something other than the creator. Romans 1 makes this plain. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In exchange, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We know the nature of the word. Okay, we see the nature of the word. What is God like? He is triune. He is three in one. One God distinct in his personage. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? You didn't mention him. Read the Gospels, especially read John. John is, is, is Marth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all synoptic Gospels, but John is not. John's emphasis is on the person and identity of Jesus, meaning that he is God. Especially read John where he's going to say, I'm going to send you the comforter. I'm going to send you someone who's going to come to glorify me. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. But again, we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we see this, 
plain and simple in today's culture. We've seen it, I would say, specifically and emphatically in today's culture, but this has been around since, since sin entered the world. Um, there is a worldview, a philosophy of, called existentialism. Um, so if we're moving into the second shift, we're, we're talking about the word today because the world would say we have a meaning, but you create your own meaning. You can create your own meaning. Self-expression. There was a philosopher called Jean-Paul Sartre. And uh, Jean-Paul Sartre was just a, he was just a French philosopher who had a, a, a tag that said, existence precedes essence. That's just a fancy way of saying that there is no God. You are a human being. There's nothing outside of this life. Therefore, you are free to construct your own meaning in life. Construct your own reason for living. And essentially, on the front value, on the front end, that seems very beautiful. It seems very freeing, liberating. There is not this authority that I have to be in line with and submit to. But we're going to see that it's absolutely untenable. Um, he had a, a maxim that says, man is condemned to be free. What does that mean? In our culture, freedom is everything. The freedom of self-expression. And it's a great, it's a great reality, and it's very true. But what he is saying is that you are condemned to feel the utter meaninglessness of life. You are condemned to be free. Free to do what? To say, I want to live forever. I want to live. I'll, I'll construct my own reason. There's a part, and if you're familiar with Disney, you know, Disney Plus has come out. Can I get an amen? Um, <laughs> we have not subscribed to it, but uh, it, it's only a matter of time. Um, but there's a part in Alice in Wonderland where the Cheshire, Cheshire cat is talking to Alice and he says, yeah, well, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. What an example of existentialism. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist in the 19th century said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. It doesn't matter. There is, no, there is no objective meaning to life. It's existence precedes essence. You're free to choose however you want to live. But the big problem is, based on what you know and you feel as a human being, there is really no way with intellectual integrity to essentially live that way. To say life is meaningless, there's no reason for life, but I want to live the way I want to live. Here's why. Two reasons, I'm very fast. Nothing you do in this life, if life is really ultimately meaningless, really ever matters. <laughs> well, no, your deeds, your deeds live on. Your good deeds live on. Yeah, for a little while. But for the, for the span of ultimate time, do we really think that you will be remembered and that you will make a difference? In the span of, of sheer time? Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, says this. Tim Keller has been a, a great value and help for me understanding this. He says, if this life is all there is and there is no God or life beyond this material world, then it will not ultimately matter whether you are a genocidal maniac or an, or an altruist. It won't matter whether you fight for hunger in Africa or are incredibly cruel and greedy and starving the poor. In the end, what you do will make no difference whatsoever. It might make some people happier or sadder for a brief time while they are on the planet. But beyond, beyond that, your influence, good or bad, will likely be negligible when viewed in any grand scale. Everything you do and everyone you have done things with and to will be gone forever. Ultimately, everything we do is radically insignificant. Nothing counts forever. That is not very uplifting. 
but very true. If life is meaningless, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you live. And the second problem is nothing can ever be ultimately wrong. Nothing is, is absolutely wrong. Some person wants to live and be, try to cure cancer, wants to be a great philanthropist, wants to help people who are impoverished and in hard times. The other person wants to rob people who are on times. Which one is right? Where, where do you get a sense of right and wrong? That's totally subjective. Where do you get a sense of right and wrong? If there's nothing outside of this life, then to try to point to something in this life and say that it's wrong, on what basis can you say that? Where do you get a sense of right and wrong? If in the context of self-constructed meanings, how can you not point to someone else's and say, you, how can you say you should not live that way? Where do you, how, can, how can you use words like should and must and ought? Those are all moral imperatives, but you've lost the moral indicative. We've lost it. Should we care about the environment and humanity if there's no God? Well, yeah, that's just because that's what a good human being should do. But where do you get the idea of good? And why should I care about the good? Why is that the dominant value? Why should I care about all of those things? How do you define that? What's your definition of that? Why should I care about the environment and humanity, especially if I'm going to be gone in 70 years? It's not my problem. Why should I care about that? See, it's absurd to say there's no reason in life no one can live. That's absolutely untenable. Dostoevsky says, if there's no God, everything is permissible. How in the context of created meanings can you explain why my chosen meaning, because I am condemned to be free, to, free to choose to live however I want to live, is wrong? How will you do that without telling me there's a different meaning I ought to have? See, th- this is just ridiculous. Existentialism, existentialism collapsed in on itself. The problem is if there's no God or no meaning in life, then there's no basis of why I should care for my neighbor, really work hard, and do things that are really good and honorable for a society. There's no basis of why I should do that. None whatsoever. That means that the love for your spouse and children, there's really no reason for it. The toil in your job day in and day out is ultimately meaningless. The things that you care about, there's really no reason for it. Now, is that true? Of course not. Of course not. Here's why. If someone just comes up to you and says, there's no reason for life. There's no ultimate meaning in life. All you do is simply say, well, was there a reason for you saying that to me? Is there meaning in what you just said? Is there a point to what you're trying to convince me to? See, you can't even think and say something without there being a reason to it. G.K. Chesterton has a maxim in his book, Orthodoxy. He says, there's a type of thought that stops thought, and that's the only thought worth stopping. You can't even begin to think and say anything without there being a reason, a point to it. We know there's a reason in life. We see that the world today, the idea of you can construct your own reason for living is foolishness. There must be something outside that I must live for. We know that there's a reason, but what is it? What's the right one? Have you seen the trailer for the movie Soul? Soul, it's a Pixar movie, which means I'm going to see it. Uh, by pressure from family. Um, the trailer is, there's a jazz music, there's a teacher, and he wants to be a jazz musician. And the trailer starts off by this. It just says, don't, it, it has a picture of a guy working with several different monitors doing probably stock analysts. He says, uh, don't waste your life on the junk of life, you need to find what you were created for. You need to find what, when you do it, it sets you free. What you, what you were meant to do. This is the opening trailer of the movie. And the reality is, is that the Greeks during this time in ourselves today are asking the exact same question. What in life, if I submit to it, 
if I surrender to it, doesn't bind me and confuse me. It sets me free. What in this life, if I surrender to it and its authority, has, does nothing but good for me? What is the universal logos that I am supposed to adhere to? And then John 1 comes. John drops a metaphysical and philosophical bombshell. And he says, he was in the beginning with God. He, he's a person. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. What does this mean? This means that you and I cannot live outside of the bounds of God's design. Or said, said differently, essence always precedes existence, not the other way around. If there's a design, there's a designer. And living outside the boundaries of that design does not cause freedom, but destruction and confusion. Here's an example. If I take my, my 09 Honda Accord, right? And I say, in the name of ultimate freedom, I'm free to construct my own meaning. I'm going to drive my Honda Accord to Hawaii. I'm going to drive across the Pacific Ocean. No one's going to tell me what my Honda can and cannot do. Right when that car hits that ocean, what's going to happen? It's going to sink because that's not its logos. That's not the reason why it was built. But if you put my boy on, the, on Highway 69 and you give her 10 seconds, she'll get to 70 mile an hour and she'll eat, baby. Why? Because that's its logos. You would never take a car and drive it, try and drive it across the ocean because that's not its logos. That's not its, its design. That would be a disgrace to its designer. And the Bible says that if anyone is building their life on anything but the Logos, they are doing exactly that. Exactly that. Because you were built to know not an abstract philosophical principle, but a person who loves you and wants you. The question John forces us right here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made the question John's going to ask us is, what is yours? What is your reason for life? What are you building your life on? Even as Christians, we must revisit this. What is it? Family? Career? Money? Beauty? Helping others? These are all good things. These are all actually gifts, but they can't be the reason why you exist. They cannot be the reason why you're here. If family is your reason, if your spouse, if your marriage is your reason for living, you know, God is a part of my reason, but it's also my spouse is my reason. I kind of have two or three different reasons. Let's say if one of your spouse, that means that any fight, any flaw that you see in your spouse won't just be attack on that person, it'll be attack to you because we're building our life on that person. You're building your entire life on someone and their failure is now your failure. If your life is built on your children, you will not set them free, you will crush them. We will crush them with our expectations. They have to have this type of grade point average, this type of career, this type of education, this type of such, such and such. There'll be so much pressure for your children, for our children to succeed that we can't even just let them be children. Why? Because my life is built on it. They are my reason for living. There are some, not all, but there are some abuse cases that they found where the abuse of children is not because the, the parent hated their children. It's because they loved them too much and wanted something for them so much. Is it your career that my life is built on what I do for a living? There will always be someone better. And in pursuit of this unachievable reputation or salary number, you will burn up relationships, both friend and family, and you will burn up yourself. Ambition is a very good thing. It is a biblical thing. God gives us that, but it can also be very dangerous. Is it money, 
Someone will always have more money than you. Someone will always have more money than us if we're building our life on money. John Rockefeller was asked, how much money is too much? How much money is enough, John? And he said, here's a man who owned at one point in time, I think it was 1% of the U.S. economy's wealth. And he said, the next dollar. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Listen to this. This too is meaningless. Is it beauty? You'll never be beautiful enough. Someone will always come along who is more handsome, more beautiful. And that's not to mention that Father Time is undefeated. We will wrinkle. We will grow old. We will wither. From dust we come and to dust we shall return. Here's another one. The last one. Helping others. This oftentimes, even in, in Christian circles, can be the reason for our being a Christian or even a reason why we live. A lot of people in secular society would say, my meaning in life is to help others. And this is a great call for Christians, for they should do just that. But it is not our reason. It, the Christian life starts off by saying, I cannot help others until I realize my need for help. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, he is meaning this, only until us Christians realize our spiritual bankruptcy, that we need a savior, that we are incapable of getting right with God, only until we realize our spiritual, spiritual bankruptcy and our moral need can we only tell other people where the bank is. That's why Jesus said this, I have not come, the sick have no need for a physician, the healthy have no need for a physician, but only the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The problem is these things are not wrong in and of themselves. But if they are elevated to the reason why we are living, then they make a crummy God. All constructed meanings will require you to die for it. If I live for money, money will demand my entire life. If I live for my family and they are my reason, I will give everything to my entire life, my entire life to making sure family is okay. All constructed meanings will demand that you die for it. But Christ, the Word, the Logos, has died for you. He has come and died for you. He says in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. So where do we find this meaning that our life is truly built on? What is the right Logos? What is the reason for life? Jesus. Precious Jesus, behold Jesus, fully God, fully man. The word with God and the word was God. Begotten, not made. He was not created. He is light from light. He is true God from true God. He is so God, so powerful that he says at one point to people, Pharisees, he says, I saw Satan fall from the sky. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. He looks at other people and says, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning, I have been here forever. I am going nowhere, and I have been here forever. So powerful to the degree that he looks at a, a man that is a quadriplegic and is wheeled down by friends in Mark from a roof. And the first thing he does is he doesn't heal his, his, his disability, but he says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Most people, even us and readers, would say, why wouldn't you heal his, his disability first? But Jesus knows why this man was created. This man's reason was to know and to love God. He's not going to heal him externally before he heals him internally. In other words, he much more needs to be forgiven than he does need to walk or to run. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And poses the question, which one is harder, to heal a man or to forgive his sin? And the Pharisees know it is so much harder to forgive someone's sin because only God can do that. Yet so gentle, so humble, so meek to be born a child. You know what a child's reality of a child is? A baby? I have a 17-month-old son, shepherd. Adjectives like weak, helpless, vulnerable. These are things that describe him. He is so loving that he gives you and I an analog for his love for us, that it's like a father who a son came to and said, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. He goes off, squanders that inheritance, and then the father looks at the son far way off and says, I love you, and he runs to him. He is so powerful, yet so loving, that that's the way he talks about you. That's the way he talks about you. He is so resolute in his love for you, beloved, that he says in Isaiah 49, 15, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I won't forget you. This is the great love that God has for you if you're a Christian. He is so near to people in times of suffering and pain that he says, behold, I am with you always, always. Think about that if you are in a season of suffering and pain and someone should be here, but they're not. Or I am under incredible pressure or sadness or depression. I am with you always. Do you know him like that? Do we know him like that as Christians? He is so empathetic. He is so godlike, yet he is the perfect human insofar as that when Lazarus died and everybody is weeping and he fully knows that I'm going to raise this boy in about five minutes, he weeps with people. Why? Because he is perfectly compassionate, perfectly loving. He weeps with those who weep. He says, a bruised reed I will not break and a smoking flax I will not squelch. He is so loving and so gentle to you if you are a Christian. That is a reason to give your life to. That is a reason that endures suffering, that suffering can never take away. And he's a person so you can talk with him and you can know him. Do you know that? Do you know him? Do you know the the logos, the reason for life? Or is he a part of your life? Remember Isaiah 42, I will not share my glory with any idol. What it means to be a Christian is that the great glow, the great shining light of Jesus outshines the small dim idols that we self-construct daily. The reason for the cradle The reason for Advent, the reason for Christmas is ultimately the cross. At the cross, God gives us his perfect life in exchange for our sin. He bears the weight of wrath, the wrath of God, in order that our lives find the reason in him. For them, finally, in him, finally, we reach our telos, our full end, our full potential. And that's why Paul says, Christ, who is your life. What an amazing sentence. Let me close with this. Andy Crouch is a famous writer. He says this, famous Christian writer. He says, the two most important questions that someone asks themselves is this. What am I, what was I meant to be? But the second one is often so sad. But why am I so far from what I was meant to be? What was I meant to be? But why am I so far from that? Christmas time often 
evokes a sense of, I want to change. We set these workout goals. We set these goals for our marriage. We set these great goals to strive for. But I would submit to us, Redeemer, believers, that the way we change is not ultimately first by striving, but by surrendering. Not by striving first, but surrendering. C.S. Lewis has been a great value in my life, says this in Mere Christianity. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death and death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. And nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Here's the issue. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. If you want to change, believer, if you are like myself, want to grow in holiness, want to grow more in touch with this person who is the reason for my life, then we must surrender in all areas of our life to him. Before we pray, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time where we as believers gather together to participate in the bread and wine. This is a meal reserved for Christians. Christians. So people who would say, my logos, my reason for life is not a principle, but is a person. And I'm knowing him more and more and more every day. We offer juice and wine. Take as your conscience leads you. If you're not a Christian here and you say, I don't know where I am, we invite you to abstain from this because you don't need a symbol. You need the real thing. You need to really know this person who is the reason for life. If you'd like to talk to someone about that, there'll be prayer responders and pastors in the back who would love to talk to you about who this Jesus person is. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, for sending yourself in the second person of the Godhead in Christ. Lord, we love you. We want to love you more. We want to surrender more to this reason that we have in Christ. God, help us today to, to obey you in all things, in all areas of life. Help us to draw near to you in our hearts and help us to repent of false reasons, false reasons that we construct daily. God, that repent of believing that we're free to construct our own reason for life. Now we see that's foolishness, but God, that you have given us a reason and it's a person. Help us to remember that. Help us to love those, God, who is difficult for us to love and help us to repent of selfishness and all the other evils that are in our hearts, God. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. Help us to desire you more through word and prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.